Because he lives and we face tomorrow. It's a great rendition of that old song. It's good to be with you in this time, church. If you would grab your Bibles with me and turn to Luke's Gospel. We continue today in chapter 3. It was just last week that we found ourselves starting into chapter 3 in our journey through this great gospel testimony. And it was there at that turn of chapter 3 that we, we see that there's a large skip in the narrative from uh, the teenage years of John and Jesus to uh, their early 30s and the launch of what's going to be both of their ministries that the Lord has ordained for them. Um, John's call has come, as we saw last week in these opening verses. The Lord made it clear it was time to go to work, to begin to preach, to begin to testify, to begin to make a way for the Lord. His job is to help people see their need to confess their sin, to turn in repentance. His baptism is full of symbolism. It's a little different than our New Covenant baptism. It was more a focus of the need for washing, the need for the filth to go away, and for emerging to new life and practices that would honor the Lord. Um, John's mission is to prepare the people for the Messiah, to be his announcer, Uh, and to point many to the salvation that belongs to the Lord. As we turn this morning, church, to verse 7 through 14, we get to hear some of John's preaching, some of his message to the large crowds that have gathered near the Jordan, to hear his fresh prophetic word, and to consider his baptism for themselves. And so it's with that in mind um, that Pastor John MacArthur had some notable points about the uniqueness of John's preaching style, and I thought it would be helpful to share with you. I quote, John the Baptist is a great model for preaching. He called on people to turn from their sin and embrace the Messiah. Of course, is the essence of true gospel preaching. We live in a time where there is a minimalistic presentation of Jesus, and at best, in many preaching environments. There's an utter absence of the issue of repentance. John was a preacher of repentance. Matthew tells us in his third chapter that John came and said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus came and said, Repent. Luke records for us in the fifth chapter that Jesus said he didn't come to call the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. Repentance is the issue. In the 13th chapter of Luke, in the third verse, and the fifth verse, Jesus said, if you don't repent, you will perish. Repentance is so often ignored today, so often overlooked and minimalized, is at the very heart of the gospel ministry. And John was a preacher of salvation. He was preaching that people could have the forgiveness of sins and new covenant salvation. The essence of that preaching is twofold. You preach repentance from sin and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's precisely what Acts 20 says the apostles preached. That is gospel preaching. He becomes for us a wonderful model of gospel preaching, new covenant preaching, preaching to sinners, telling them they can be forgiven if they repent, if they embrace the true Christ, the true Messiah. The words of Pastor John MacArthur. Church, it, this is the unique role that God has called John to. A very 
unique role in a special time to be the forerunner, the announcer of the long-promised Messiah. People needed to understand that something was very wrong. And the penalty due their sin before the Holy God was very serious. And the only answer was to turn from their sin and self unto Christ in faith and salvation. See with me that this is why at the opening of our text today, John is so serious and to the point even potentially harsh with his words. See with me that this is love for those that God has put before him, that he doesn't pull any punches. He says what they need to hear and speaks truth boldly. Look with me at the beginning of our passage today, church. Luke chapter 3, verse 7. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? One of the first things we see here, and I ask you to take notice of with me this morning, is that the people coming to hear John the Baptist's messages were coming by the droves. I mean, there was a large gathering. This became the thing. This became the popular place to be. The word was getting out. And yet, John is not interested in numbers or attendance. He's interested in truth. He's interested in God-honoring repentance. Sadly, there is a mass departure for many modern-day churches who value the very opposite of John. Churches have learned to perfect attractional models, environments, and the ministry buffet of different offerings to grow attendance, to improve numbers. To accomplish this priority, many won't even preach all of Holy Scripture because as I've even heard some say, there are parts of Scripture that are just too controversial for many to embrace. Woe to the church and woe to the preacher who says, that they, who says what they think people want to hear in order to have a bigger attendance. This is how superficial faith is perpetuated in modern-day churchgoers. And it is a true tragedy. One of the reasons why I personally love the life and testimony of John the Baptist is his great humility, which we'll see on wonderful display in next week's text and sermon, um, but also his making much of Christ and his willingness to say what needs to be said in truth. John is willing to be very blunt, even calling his listeners out in front of others. Why? Because they are desperate for a wake-up call. They don't need glad handling. John knows that his audience needs to do business with the gravity of their situation apart from Christ. This is John's mission. You need to see it uniquely with me, church. His mission was to stir the pot, to ring the bell, to call many to repentance for the kingdom of God was at hand. One theologian of old said it this way, the unbeliever's guilt before the holy God cannot be remedied by a dip in the water. And I would say that's still very true today with a little bit of a different spin. Unbeliever's guilt before the holy God cannot be remedied by one's proximity to the church. We are all 
desperate for Jesus alone. Thank you, God, that you sent your son to save many and to make us yours. Amen? Well, Luke says here in verse 7 that John is speaking to a larger crowd. Matthew's gospel gives us a little more clarity on these particular words. Um, as he's speaking to people who he knows, specifically the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Look with me at Matthew's account, Matthew 3, 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Calling them a brood of vipers is a way of saying that they are sons of snakes. John is referring to people who are known for being poisonous, known for being destructive, for perverting the truth. In this, they are, according to Scripture, children of the devil. They're children of wrath. Contextually, when brush fires rage in the desert, the snakes would scatter to flee the destruction of the fire. So John asked a very provocative question, inquiring, who has told them to flee the coming wrath? The wrath that's in reference here, of reference here is God's judgment on guilty sinners. Church, it's important that we understand God's wrath is a glorious attribute of our Lord. It is one for which he is to be forever praised. It is good. It is just. And he is righteous in his dealing with sin, with his wrath. But for those who remain guilty in their sin, it is the most fearsome reality that one could ever know. The reality of God's coming wrath is a regular emphasis of Holy Scripture, one not to be avoided, one not to be set aside and not talked about. Paul speaks of it often. Consider just a few references of high warning. Romans 2.5 But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. In Romans 2.8 For those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Ephesians 5, 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Colossians 3, 5 and 6. Put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And then for the believer, a word of good news related to the wrath of God that we read in Romans 5, 9. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Praise be to God for the blood of Jesus to save us from our due penalty because of our sin. Church, we have so much to praise God for every day we wake up in Christ. For we're no longer guilty before the Holy God. His wrath is not upon us. 
This is truly good news for our soul. John's rebuke to highlight the seriousness of God's wrath speaks of snakes trying to escape the fire of God's wrath by slithering into the waters of the Jordan. But this will not suffice. Any external lip service people might try to give to look the part will not work. The prophets of old wrote of God's warning of this, Isaiah 29, 13. And the Lord said, Because this people draw near me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. This is a sobering but good description of many of the Jews who stood before John on the embankments that day. They were stuck in a man-made religion that had them so focused on the laws of men, so focused on their external production. What they needed was something entirely different and something entirely better. This is what John is trying to point them to. John likely sees the presence of these Pharisees and Sadducees in his audience of listeners and considers it ironic, doubting any kind of sincerity that they have to truly be interested to pursue repentance, which means to confess the sin of their ways and to really turn from them. But, church, God is able. The most guilty, wicked sinner that you know, God is able to completely change their lives, if he so wills. So John still calls these to the very thing he's calling all those he was preaching to that day. And we see it in the first part of verse 8. Look with me. He says, Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. In this, John is trying to directly highlight an important fact of Holy Scripture, and that is that true repentance reveals true spiritual transformation that's empowered by God. The simple fact is, real repentance, real turning from sin unto what is righteous, manifests itself in real action. It's not something we say, it's not something we just talk about, it's something we do. James will later emphasize in his letter, if you want to reference back to that New Testament letter, James, the synopsis of much of his writing is that true saving faith will go to work. It won't remain idle. True faith will show itself in good works. John's specific charge as a sign of true repentance was that people bear fruit, that they honored God and not their flesh. Repentance is turning to what honors God, to what is righteous, from what honors the flesh and what is sin. The repentance that God grants to his elect happens in the, in the context of transformation brought about by our conversion and regeneration that he provides. Praise be to God. As a result, we who are redeemed are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's the words of Paul in Ephesians 2.10. Church, sin must be properly and fully addressed, not only because of the ramifications of these things in this life, but in the eternal life to come. 
This is why John's message to prepare people for the Lord's salvation is so serious. It's why we who are the readers of this message still today are blessed to be reminded of the serious wrath due sin and therefore the wonder and awe of Christ who saves anyone and the Holy Spirit who empowers the saved with real and ongoing repentance and fruit. Fruit is our testimony shown in thoughts, in word, in deed. It's really who we are on the inside and not just what we project to be or pretend to be. The fact is that only those who trust in Jesus alone have the Holy Spirit and therefore can bear the fruit of the Spirit. Notice that this doesn't stop John from calling people to turn from sin and to do what's righteous. That's because that's been the command of God from the beginning. All the ways that it is impossible to bear fruit in keeping with repentance without new birth, without the Holy Spirit, is all the ways that John is not providing salvation, but preparing people for the salvation of the Lord. John's rebuke takes another step when he calls out something that the Jews, and especially the religious elite, were known for saying. He says in the second part of verse 8, Do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. This would be like people saying today, I'm good with God because I go to church. Or I'm good with God because my parents are believers. This is not how one is right with God. This is not how we honor God. John's rebuke is to say that it's not enough to lean on your ancestral blood to be considered good before God. The, the common misbelief of many Old Covenant people was just because they were in Abraham's bloodline, they would receive the promises of Abraham. This is something the apostles and Jesus had to constantly speak to and correct in their teachings throughout the New Testament. John is sharp to go so far to say, don't even say to yourself. In that he's saying, don't even think this way. Because this is such a disastrous belief that you hold that Abraham's bloodline is somehow the way by which you're going to be protected from God's judgment. Church, in the end, our pedigree, our biological connections do not have any bearing on our salvation from sin. The ultimate need is for God's sovereign hand of mercy to set us free, to set free our dead heart unto faith and the only one who can save us from our sins, Jesus Christ. This is the only way one turns to new life of faith, to fight against sin, to live in righteousness for God's glory. Salvation, as Scripture teaches again and again, belongs to the Lord. This is John's point. He adds, For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. The stones represent inanimate, lifeless objects. They're dead. They're not living. 
God alone, who rules over all creation, can do with them what he pleases. Now, God's not proposing that Jesus turn stones into his adopted children. It's an emphasis of two things. Number one, God can raise up his children from anything he chooses. Therefore, your participation in Abraham's bloodline is not a prerequisite. Number two, God is the one who decides whom he will save. It is his sovereign and free choice. He can make all the children for Abraham that he wants to make. Made of dust, of dust will return. We read similar imagery in Isaiah 51. The call to look at Abraham is really to remember God's promise. Um, but more so to see Abraham's faith. And this is really the emphasis in the teaching of Jesus and the other apostles in the New Testament. When people want to say, hey, we belong to Abraham, we're good. The New Testament is clear to teach again and again that the true children of Abraham were those of saving faith in Jesus and not those of the bloodline only, as many believed. Salvation, according to Scripture, is individual. It's not corporate. Jesus will later say very clearly, John 8, 39, they answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. In other words, you would be showing the fruit of true faith in accordance with repentance because they are truly the children of Abraham. Paul emphasizes this in a couple of different places. One very poignantly in the early parts of Romans 9, verses 6 through 8. He says, It is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all those in the bloodline belong to true Israel or God's elect. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And here's the clarity in verse 8. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, the descendants of the line, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Who are the offspring of Abraham in an eternal sense? Those who are promised to be saved, those whom God saves, those who believe in faith in Christ. Paul adds later in his letter to Galatia, Galatians 3, Galatians 3, 7, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Or Galatians 3, 29, If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. At the end of the day, it's not about who you know, what family you're from, what church you even go to. It is solely a matter of God's sovereign work to give you saving faith in Christ alone unto repentance, unto a life that honors the Lord and not self. Look with me as we continue. Verse 9, John says, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Notice he says, the axe is laid to the root of the tree. This is a very specific descriptor. 
It is to emphasize that the axe is one strike away from the tree being cut down. The chiseling away has, been hap has happened already. And it is one final blow away from finishing the job to fall the tree. The removal of the fruitless vine or tree is descriptions that we see parallel throughout Old Testament writings. Hosea 10, Jeremiah 2, use this imagery to depict the nation's destruction and judgment. Isaiah 10 uses this imagery for the same of the Assyrians. Amos 3 for the Amorites. The axe's aim is the fruitless tree. The bearing of fruit is the evidence that one is saved, set free, empowered by the Holy Spirit, truly belonging to Christ in faith. If one who is claiming to be good with God, but does not have faith or the evidence of true repentance in Christ, and therefore no Holy Spirit-empowered fruit, they are not a part of God's eternal people and will suffer for their sin apart from God. Jesus uses the same imagery later, Matthew 7, 16 through 20. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the, the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruit. Just as John calls the crowd that day, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Jesus highlights the same thing, the reality that true conversion and salvation will show itself by the practice of fruit, the practice of repentance. Hear me clearly, church, not the practice of perfection. No one is perfect this side of glory other than Christ. But for the saved, progressive sanctification, being made more and more holy, Growing in the Lord, growing in Christ's likeness, will be our testimony. The practice of true repentance of sin and the practice of righteousness will be our testimony. This is the fruit of the Spirit to change what was sinful and self serving into a marvelous testimony that points others to the Lord. Paul describes the fruit of the Spirit in the famous passage in Galatians 5, 22-23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It's good to remember that when the Holy Scriptures talk about fruit, it's talking ultimately about character. While the evidence of the fruit is seen on the exterior of one's life, right? We are called to judge one another's fruit, right? That, that is in Scripture, despite the misguided Christianese that many call 
that we're not to judge. We are to judge righteously, especially one another, for the bearing of fruit, evidence of our salvation. How can we judge fruit if you can't see it? I mean, ultimately, the evidence of fruit is seen on the exterior of one's life, but it's not just an exterior action. It is something when genuine that comes from within. It's the evidence that shows off on the outside what is true on the inside. It is why ultimately fruit is about character. It's about who someone is at their core. It's the fruit or the character, the attributes of a person. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. What's unique about these are these are not things that sin-filled, selfish, fleshly humans do on our own accord. We don't produce these things on our own because the flesh is not these things naturally. Quite the opposite. Our flesh is full of selfishness, hate, sadness, impatience, meanness, sinfulness, unfaithfulness, harshness, and being out of control. People don't produce these things. God does. People are not these things naturally. God is. We might put on a good show. Some might adopt habits, put on replicas that look like these things. But without God, we don't have this kind of character. We don't have these attributes at work in our life. This is another way John is preparing the people for Christ. They need to see their need for Jesus. Because bearing fruits in accordance with repentance won't happen without conversion. It won't happen without the Lord. He's pointing a way to Christ. Those who are fruitless or remain fruitless will be cut down is back to the seriousness of John's preaching. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. In other words, this wrath that one might be trying to flee from is coming. It's close. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Notice with me the seriousness of this. The trees are not only exposed by their being chopped down, they're burned with fire. The imagery of God's consuming destruction and wrath is one that we see in both the Old and New Testaments. It is important that we don't shirk it, but we do business with it, and we're not afraid to speak of it. The late great J.C. Ryle once said this of that topic. He said, The subject of hell is always offensive to human nature. The minister who dwells much upon it must expect to find himself regarded as barbaric, coarse, violent, unfeeling, and narrow-minded. Right? That's how he's regarded. Men love to hear smooth things and to be told of peace and not of danger. But the subject of hell is one that ought not to be kept back if we desire to do good to souls. It is one that our Lord Jesus Christ brought forward frequently in his public teachings. 
that loving Savior who spoke so graciously of the way to heaven has also used the plainest language about the way to hell. Let us beware of being wise above that which is written and more charitable than Scripture itself. Let the language of John the Baptist be deeply engraved on our hearts. Let us never be ashamed to avow our our firm belief that there is a coming wrath for the impenitent and that it is possible for a man to be lost as well as to be saved. To be silent on the subject is dreadful treachery to men's souls. It only encourages them to persevere in wickedness and fosters in their minds the devil's old delusion, you shall not surely die. That minister is surely our best friend who tells us honestly of danger and warns us, like John the Baptist, to flee the wrath to come. Never will a man flee until he sees the real cause to be afraid. Never will he seek heaven until he's convicted, convinced that he is on his way to hell. The religion in which there is no mention of hell is not the religion of John the Baptist and of our Lord Jesus and his apostles. John's preaching, John's message to this crowd, church, see it with me, is to highlight the need for the Messiah and the judgment that is coming. Church, if we're honest and we see it clearly, this is still our message today, is it not? The truth of the gospel is there is only one salvation in Christ. And for those who reject him, there is true and lasting wrath. This is the truth of God's word. This is the fullness of the gospel. Both the ministry of the Messiah and the judgment of God as it's drawing near is what John is speaking of. John's aim is to help his hearers see their need for repentance unto a life that is truly fruitful and righteous. John's role is to prepare the way, to awaken their awareness to these realities, to call attention to the lies, and to point to the truth, to point the way. For in the end, they can't and won't repent and believe without the grace and gift and faith of God, from God. I pray it is God's good work in each of us to consider these important things, whether it is unto repentance and faith in Christ for salvation for the unbeliever in the room, or it is remembering the good news of our salvation unto repentant life for the believers in the room. Either way, we have much to praise him for. The good news is that among the crowd of John's listeners that day, there were many who were hearing and leaning in. Instead of being offended and moving on, they were humble. They asked, what must we do? Three groups, the crowd, some tax collectors, and some soldiers. Listen to the entirety of this interaction as we read verses 10 through 14. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics to share, I'm sorry, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. 
tax collectors also came to be baptized and said, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. The crowd, the tax collectors, and some soldiers. Three very different groups with essentially the same spiritual need. They need redemption. They need to be called to the same righteous life and repentance. They ask, what shall we do? If we're honest, we find ourselves at that crossroad, do we not? Times in our lives where we're asking the same question. And John's answer is helpful, I think, especially when you see them all together. It's essentially to point to what the repentant life looks like in simplistic form. It looks like one who has turned from sin and selfishness to what honors the Lord and is selflessly loving to others. What is righteous? John essentially says, do what is righteous in each of these given situations. To the crowd, he says, be a blessing to others by sharing what you have in love and generosity. Church, is this not the constant teaching of Jesus our Lord later in the Gospels? For example, in this Gospel, chapter 12, 33-34, Jesus says, sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with treasure in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. To the tax collectors, John says, don't cheat people out of their money, but only collect what the rulers and the laws call for you to. Jesus affirms this same thing in Mark chapter 12, 17. Says to the people, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. The tax collectors were to just collect what the authorities called for. If they were to take more, they would be stealing. He calls them to do what is righteous. To the soldiers, he says, that they are to use their authority, not to threaten, uh, bring false accusation, but to treat others with respect. He adds, to be content with the money that they agreed to work for, and not be greedy for more, using their authority to swindle people out of their money. Jesus has, again, many similar instructions. One that really came to mind in, in, in my study this week, and I just wanted to read it in its entirety, is Jesus' parable to the laborers, really focusing on the last point that John makes to the soldiers about being content with the wage that they were agreed to work for. Matthew 20, 1 through 16, consider Jesus' teaching. He says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into the vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went, going out about the sixth hour, and the ninth hour he did the same. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing, and he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? And when evening, 
They said to him, because we have, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, because each of them also received a denarius. On receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to the last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. Now, church, I could preach on that text all day. And I won't. You meditate on these truths that God is speaking here, and they're marvelous and many and a great ministry to our soul. Notice the prescriptions that John's giving to these is something unique. Because often when we feel like we're getting stuck and things aren't going or we're looking for whatever, we, we're looking, we look for a total reboot. What John prescribes to these people is not a new government. It's not a new program to be part of. It's simple. It's Holy Spirit-empowered, personal, voluntary, Compassion. To give, to act, to be just, to pursue truth. See with me, disciples, that these exhortations are simply about a righteous treating of others that honors God. But it's more than this. For it's also a true help to each of these people's hearts to not find their significance, their identity, their satisfaction in the temporary things of creation, but in God. This is the threat of sin that knocks at every one of our doors all the time. The temptation to overvalue or overcling to the things of this world. And to get overly upset when they change or, 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 or they're unjust and, and, and it, it just wrecks us and it undoes us. When people are people and things don't go to plan. We're blessed by the Lord to be freed of such a penetrating reaction that that creates in us. When I hold fast to the Lord, I'm content in Him. I can steward my days, my children, my job, my things so differently because my joy, my identity, my satisfaction is found in Christ alone. John is painting for these three groups a picture of life in Christ and what it equals. A testimony of transformation, of a changed life, changed motivations. He's pointing to three people groups that can genuinely struggle in their sin to act selfishly and dishonor God and others, but to show them what it looks like when we're made new in Christ, empowered by the Spirit to honor God and to love others before ourselves. What I love 
is that this is a testimony of many of you. Think about it. God has brought so many of you from so many sinful practices and addictions and self-serving ways, saved you and empowered you with the Spirit and equipped you with the Word to know God and begin to do what is righteous. Praise God. To bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Praise God for His gracious work in us. For we had no hope for any of this apart from Him. Amen? For those that are in a season of struggling, maybe you're struggling with old vices, with fleshly emotions, maybe with sinful temptations. Christian, turn to the goodness of the Lord. Rest in His grace on you. Stop being motivated and empowered by your circumstances or lack thereof. You have Christ. Know Him. Walk with Him. Enjoy Him. Know His grace for you. Know His love for you. See that He has you in His grip and He will not forsake you. Only out of your refreshed abiding in the Lord in this way will a new crop of God-honoring fruit emerge itself. This may take time. As we said and focused well last week, we must learn to wait on the Lord for His time and His way is so much better than ours. Be careful to overly focus on how you are stacking up or doing in comparison to those around you. That is such a toxic practice. And the reality is, according to Scripture, we're not even all the same. We're the same in Christ. We're equal before the cross. But Scripture teaches the Lord gives us different journeys, different lots to steward, and even different measures of faith. Consider Paul's words in Romans 12.3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Wherever you are on the journey of bearing fruits that is keeping with repentance, understand it is always dependent on Christ. For only out of the vine does the branch bear fruit that keeps with repentance. God ordained John to speak these different groups of people that day. He ordained that we today are considering their journey and his testimony and preaching to them. Why? These are struggles that any of us can relate to in some fashion. In church, I say it's a great help to us that we would take seriously the sin that clings so easily, that we would lay an axe to it by the power of the Holy Spirit to be intentional, to take time to consider our own vices and particular corruptions. When the Lord gives us view of them, that's a blessing that we would get to then wage war. That we would walk in Christ and live for Christ. When we're sincere and honest with ourselves and with the Lord, He will bless us to help us turn from it, to turn towards Christ, who has set us free from the chains of our sin, that we would ultimately rest in Him and be empowered by Him 
to love and live for God. Amen? Amen. Matthew chapter 3, 1 through 2. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I thank God for his work in John to stir the pot and prepare the way for the Lord. May we be willing to keep this gospel testimony that we've been entrusted with shining bright and not shirking back from speaking truth and love and what people need to hear. For the lost, they still need to hear, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. May it be so, Lord, as you continue to work in us. Pray with me, church. Father, what a joy to have this time. It's precious to our soul. It's good for our lives. All the outplay of these days. To be blessed with your word. To dive deep. To understand these truths as you've written them in the context of Holy Scripture. The movement of the Spirit upon each one of us. Uniquely, differently, precisely. To give us clarity. Uh, redemption and reconciliation and repentance and, and, and response, that, that we would respond, that we would act on these things. Any conviction we might be sensing this morning, we, we would not just get busy and turn from it because therefore it's wasted emotion, but, but we'd act, we would respond, we would, we would invite in others for accountability, we would make a phone call, we, we would take a step to the things that honor you, Lord. God, thank you for the things you're doing in us, the ways in which you're growing, sanctifying us, for the ways in which the gospel is going to work in many people who, who have been dead in sin by your grace are being given saving faith unto new life in Christ. What a joy. We pray for the preaching of the gospel around the world this very morning that many of our eternal brothers and sisters will be saved to feast with us at your table. Lord, it is for your glory that we live. It's for your glory that we're saved. It's for your glory that we'll worship you forever. Lord, hear us now as we unite our voices in worship, exaltation, joyful celebration of all that you are and all that you've done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.